Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus says, none of my words will pass away. And so we pray, Father, this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak through these words of Jesus to us and help us to become more like you, watching for the future. Amen. Well, that's the title for this morning's sermon, Be Alert and Prepared for the Future. Well, of course, this is uh, uh, not a new message to us. We're all used to this message this morning. Because in many ways, the society that we live in asks us these questions. What is our security based upon? Are we prepared for the future? Are we making the right decisions about the future? Of course, in our day and age, this is a big issue with the EU referendum uh, coming up in a couple of weeks or so. And as a nation, we're being asked to choose what kind of future we want as a country. Each side of the issue is asking us to vote for their particular viewpoint of what the future will look like for Britain if we support their stance on the issue. Of course, none of us knows what will be the result of the referendum. None of us knows what will be the result of the future. But of course, it's not just a political issue that we're being concerned about. We're being bombarded in our society with issues concerning our future. So think about all the health issues. You've got to eat this to make sure you are healthy. You've got to do this amount of running to make sure you've lost all those pounds that you've put on by eating chips. You know, we've also been told, aren't we, that uh, you know, young people are constantly being told what type of qualification they must work for if they want to get a good job. Or what about the issue that young people are faced with and all of us are faced with perhaps the future concerning pensions? And will we have a decent standard of living in our elder years? We're constantly being told we've got to think about the future. But in this chapter this morning that we've got in front of us, in Mark chapter 13, that you'll find on page 1019, Jesus takes this to another level, that of kingdom values. Now, we're in this series on Mark's Gospel, and previously we've seen that in Mark's Gospel that the religious leaders have challenged Jesus as to who he is, and by what authority he speaks and acts. But in chapter 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, that is, those that have followed, chosen to follow him. Jesus is challenging his disciples on, as to how they are to live, what is their security based upon in a world that doesn't acknowledge the lordship of Christ and God's future plans. Jesus, if you remember, has already warned his disciples in a couple of chapters before that he will be killed. Man will kill him. And now he shows his love for them and for us by warning what the future will hold. 
Now, it's important as we look at this passage together to recognize that this chapter is not written to promote discussion on prophetic timetables concerning the future, but rather to stimulate right living by the followers of Jesus. And we can divide this chapter up into two sections, which is why I asked for the reading to be done in two halves. So firstly, we've got the first section, verses 1 to 23, which is concerned about the near future, the future that the Jewish people would experience. It's concerned about their identity and what their security is based upon, because it deals with the destruction of the temple. And then we've got verses 28 to 31, which is a parable spoken by Jesus concerning the fig tree and how the fig tree can be used as a way of predicting what's going to happen. The summer's going to actually come after the spring. And then we've got the second section, verses 24 through to 27, 27, which deals with the second coming of Jesus to the whole world. And in verses Uh, 32 to 37, we've got the parable of the absent householder, which again refers to Jesus' second coming. So that's the way we're going to look at it this morning, in these two sections. Jesus had been in the temple, and he'd been teaching and watching the people. We need to understand something about this temple. Here's a diagrammatic representation of it. It was built by Herod the king, mostly in marble. It was a magnificent building that dominated the city of Jerusalem and the life of the Jewish people. It was built and given to the Jewish nation by Herod to win their support. The temple was the centre of Jewish life and it's what clearly defined who they were as a unique race. They were God's people. And it's what their security was based upon. Because the temple is the place where the Jewish religious leaders believed God dwelt and could be worshipped. So as we imagine that scene with Jesus leaving the temple, it it must have been a terrible shock to the disciples as they left the temple because Jesus predicts that this mighty temple would be destroyed. It would be destroyed. He is challenging and teaching his followers to consider the future and what is the basis of their security. And so we read in verses 5 to 23 that Jesus gives gives his disciples four instructions on how they are to live their lives and how they should respond to this dreadful event that is recorded in verses 5 to 13. So let's have a look at these four things that they should uh, actually consider. Firstly, we see that they should not be misled by confusing religious claims of messiahship or speculative interpretations of what will happen in the future, verses 5 and 6. They are not to panic, even though there will be painful natural events like earthquakes, famines, and nations fighting against each other, as as represented by the pain of childbirth. 
Now, this use of uh, this imagery of childbirth is a very good illustration because childbirth at the time was a common event. It took place in households and not hospitals. And so even children would have heard and have known of the pain of childbirth. And so Jesus is warning them of the pain of the destruction of the temple. So that's the first thing. They're not to be misled. They're not to panic. But secondly, verse 9, they're not to be afraid of telling others about Christ, even if they're flogged, beaten, and imprisoned. And they shouldn't worry about how they're going to answer their accusers, who will be important and powerful people, because it is the Holy Spirit speaking through them. So it's not their responsibility to have to draw up clever answers to the accusations made by these powerful people. In their obedience to following Christ, his Holy Spirit that dwells within them will provide them with what to say and will give them security so they can relax even in this dreadful situation. Now, of course, this may not seem very relevant to us, in our situation here in Norwich today. But for many Christians in countries in the Middle and Far East, this will be a great encouragement as they are imprisoned for their faith. It gives us the opportunity, though, to claim Jesus' promise on their behalf in our prayers for them. However, whatever happens in our lives, we may well experience hatred and opposition, separation from family members or work colleagues as we seek to share the love of Christ with them. And we can be encouraged that the Holy Spirit, if we are followers of Jesus, will be with us in these situations. So then, how should these disciples and we act when opposition comes? Look in verse 13. Jesus says we must stand firm in our faith and not be surprised by persecution in whatever form it takes. So what then is the future as followers of Jesus likely to be? Well, twice within this passage, their future is spoken of that they are not to be surprised. We read in verses 23 and 33 that they are to be alert and to be on guard to be prepared for the future. But in this preparation, they must also act. Look what it says in verses 14 to 23. They are to flee to the hills when the Roman army came. It was going to be a truly dreadful time. And so we see in this first section, in these first 23 verses, that the, 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 the fate of the temple is, is given. The disciples are going to be on their own and they must develop patience. Jesus warns the disciples when it will happen, uh, what will happen to them, but not when it will happen. But it did happen in AD 70 when the Roman soldiers under Nero came and destroyed the temple. And so warnings by Jesus are to be taken seriously for all followers. And we need to be not surprised when this happens, even in our society. And so in these first section, we got Jesus prophesying, which was fulfilled 40 years later. 
But there are messages for us today when societies uh, set themselves against the gospel, when Jesus' standards uh, produce arrogance and dehumanizing structures, where there's deep injustice and radical oppression. God's prophets need to denounce these, and God's people need to pray for those who are so suffering in their particular situation. So there we have the message of the first section. Moving on to the second section. In verse 26, Jesus states, at that time, it sets this statement apart from the destruction of the temple. Jesus is predicting his second coming, his return and the collection of his followers. And so there again is a warning here concerning what we set out set our security in. Is our security based upon our nation state, our economic well-building, or perhaps we rely upon our mighty military uh, abilities to destroy half the world at a push of a button? But look what Jesus states. Jesus says, be a watchkeeper. And he uses this parable of the, uh, of, that's found in the, uh, about houses in the Middle East. And they're going to put a picture on the screen of what a typical large house in the Middle East would look like. And in that house there would be a servant whose job it was to guard the entrance to the compound within which the house was found. And this servant would announce the arrival of visitors or the master and guard against intruders. They would have to stay awake throughout the 24 hours of the day and watch. And Jesus is using this illustration to teach how Jesus' followers must be alert. They must watch. They must be prepared for the coming of Jesus back into the world to claim his kingdom. Now, if you think, well, this is a strange uh, thing to predict and it's only found here, it is actually there are three references in Mark's gospel to the Jesus' second coming. So if you turn to Mark chapter 8, verse uh, 38, you will see what he says in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. He says this, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And in chapter 14, verse, 20, uh, verse 62, we read the following. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds of heaven. Now, this is a subject, isn't it, that we don't hear a great deal on within our preaching or teaching in churches today. Partly, I believe, because the subject of the return of Jesus as Lord a second time has led some people to extreme behaviour, including trying to work out and prophesy when this will happen. We had, to some extent, this at the uh, last millennium. Well, Jesus warns his disciples and us not to do this. It's a worthless activity and only makes people look silly in the eyes of the world. It doesn't bring glory to God or his kingdom. Like the servant in that parable, we do not know when this will happen. 
Jesus states in verse 32, not even the angels or Jesus himself will know when this will happen. Only God the Father knows when Jesus will return in glory. Now this is a puzzle, isn't it, to each one of us. If we believe in the Trinitarian God, that God is made up of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, how is it that the Son doesn't know of the plans of the Father? How can this be? If Jesus is one with the Father, how come he doesn't know this? Well, some commentators suggest that this reference to the Son is explained in the fact that though Jesus was one with the Father, he gave up certain of God's characteristics when he was on earth. So Jesus wasn't omnipresent when he was on earth as a man, as God is. He was limited to time and place before his resurrection. The writer Paul Burnett reckons, though, that this does, in fact, point to a hierarchical nature of God. We don't know, really, why this is. But what we do know is that the return of Jesus in his glory will be happening. The death and resurrection and return of Jesus should be thought of together as the kingdom of God. The bridge between Jesus' humiliating death and triumphant return is his resurrection. It is the risen Son of Man that will return. This will be the great climax of the age to be described only in otherworldly and cosmic language as in the book of Daniel and Revelation. And of course, as we who are bound within time and history hear Jesus' words and contemplate the frontiers of time and eternity, when God's kingdom will again appear, we are confronted with both mystery and majesty. It's a hard subject to understand. Well, despite these problems, I do believe that we need to know and understand the biblical teaching concerning the return of Jesus a second time to secure his kingdom. Why? Why is it important to us? Well, I believe because it gives us a correct perspective upon history. It puts God into the correct position and places mankind under the authority of God. And also it shows us the love of Jesus for all of mankind. As we read in verse 27, he will send his angels to collect his elect from the ends of the earth. We're reading of a new temple being formed of God's gathered people. The old is gone, as seen in the destruction of the old temple, and the new is coming. Now, for some of us, Jesus spoke those words a long time ago. And there's been, so far, no second return of Jesus. And this can lead us to doubt the words of him and doubt that he will return again. We should, though, be reminded that uh, the sign of his coming, the destruction of the temple, did take place, as he said, it would. And all other prophecies of Jesus concerning his death, his resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the persecution of his followers, the desecration and destruction of the temple, the sufferings of the people in Judea have all been fulfilled in history. 
It is only his prophecy of his second coming that awaits fulfillment. And so we have this promise prophesied by Jesus that he will return to collect his followers. What a wonderful promise for each one of us. What a wonderful demonstration of God's love for us and for all mankind. But how should that leave us? How should this affect my sense of security, my daily life and the life of this church? Well, if I truly believe this promise, then each day as I get up, I should expect the return of Jesus. And this should, should affect how I live, how I share the good news with the people that I live with and meet. That's the challenge, and that should give us the greatest encouragement and stimulus to us to go out and share the good news that Jesus died for our sinful lives, that Jesus loves us so much that he offers us the chance to be a part of that collection of followers drawn into God's kingdom through the death and shed blood of Jesus. But not only will this be an encouragement to each one of us who follow Jesus, it should also be a stimulus to the church that the prime aim of the church is to enable people to hear this wonderful news that God loves them so much that he provided a way for each one of us to be a part of Jesus' kingdom and that we can all become followers of Jesus, saved by grace and not by our own efforts. And this is why, of course, as we look for a new incumbent, we want to appoint someone whose aim it is to reach out and spread the gospel message into the church and the local community. Because in doing so, we will then be obedient to Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all mankind. And this, of course, is why, as Will has said this morning, that we want to appoint an outreach worker, someone who can help us all to go out into the community, to share this message of Jesus. And so then, in conclusion, I return to my questions. Are we alert? Are we prepared for the future? And if we are, what is our security based upon? Because the overarching message from this chapter and Jesus' teaching is that his followers need to watch, need to be alert, and need to be prepared for his kingdom to be established. We're not to waste time trying to work out exact timings and programs, but rather to live lives as individuals and as a church, preparing for Jesus to come again. So how can we do this? What's the way forward? Well, surely by studying God's words and God's promises found in the Bible, but not just by studying them, by putting them into practice. So each day, as we, as we live them, we actively seek ways of bringing in God's kingdom. We present Jesus to the community, to friends, family, by radical discipleship. We look after the poor, the marginalised, those that are unloved and oppressed, because this is what God wants us to do. Jesus' life on earth gives us the pattern for how he wants us to live and how we can do this. Jesus' teaching instructs us how we can be ready for his coming again, that great day 
when he will split heaven and all his followers will be drawn to him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you for his message of salvation. Father, we want to thank you that we can come individually and corporately before your throne. We can ask for forgiveness. We can rely upon the promises that Jesus gave us. And we can look to spread your word throughout this week, your word of love for everyone who is apart from you. So fill us anew, we pray, with your spirit. Amen.